0: Welcome to the Profitable Farmer podcast, where we share stories and tips to help you run a better farming business and create your very own freedom farm. If you're looking to work smarter and not harder in your farm business, welcome, you're in the right place. G'day everyone, welcome again to Profitable Farmer. In my last podcast, it was sort of close to Australia Day and I, I sort of got a bit reflective on just how bloody lucky we are to be Australian and just thinking about that in the lead-up to this podcast, I think part of the reason why I feel so privileged and lucky to be an Australian is just because of the some of the incredible people that, that this country somehow turns out. Um, I can't tell you how starstruck and honoured I am to have this conversation. I can't wait. For this next hour, um, my next guest is the most decorated female track cyclist of all time. She has won 400, sorry, 400, four 500 meter track time trials at the World Championships. At the 2015 UCI Track Cycling World Championships, Anna Mears took gold in the Kirin her 11th world title in total, making her that most decorated female track cyclist of all time. I think, Anna, I've got this right. Two golds, one silver, three bronze over four consecutive Olympics. 11 golds, 10 silvers, six bronze at World Championships. Five golds, two silvers, one bronze at the Commonwealth Games, making her the first Australian to win individual medals in four consecutive Olympics. It's quite an incredible career over an amazing amount of time. And, you know, for me, just doing my little bit of research, and I recommend that you do watch Arndos interview um, in brushes with fame with Anna. It was truly amazing, Anna, to watch. But just the strength, the determination, the grit, the persistence through adversity, and the humility with which you shaped your career. I just think you are such a great example of what it is to be a cracking Australian. So, thank you so much for your time with us this morning.
1: It is my pleasure. Thank you. Well, it was a very kind introduction. I appreciate it.
0: I hope I got most of that right.
1: You did. You nailed it.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Google. <laughs> So Anna, um, humble humble regional and rural beginnings. Yes. Um, growing up in Middle Mount, how was how was your childhood and and how was life for you in in that small country town?
1: Uh, life for me, it was just free. There was just this immense sense of freedom. Um, my mum's rule was sun up, sundown. That was when we had to be out the house and back. Uh, We did everything from building cubbies in the bush to swinging off ropes in the creek when there was enough water running through it. Often there wasn't. Um, You know, we just had an immense sense of freedom. Um, We were able to go to a friend's house. And I remember you knew where all the kids were because all the bikes were crashed out in the front yard. Um, And that was probably one of our first introductions to bikes was it was quicker to get to our mate's house by riding than it was by walking because our parents sure as hell weren't going to be driving us so it's um and and it was a real sense of community in that sports school whatever the um interest of the cohort of of kids in the area was there was a real sense of community everyone got behind it um, we got involved in BMX. My whole family were involved in terms of caretaking the yard. We all had to go out, yeah. You know, all the kids would get put in the back of the Ute to roll over new jumps and new sections of the track. Um, we'd all paint the tyres, clean the toilets, those sorts of things. So everyone was involved at every kind of level to to create success in, in what everyone was interested in at the time. So I have really good memories of growing up, of of just a sense of freedom, a sense of community, sense of friendship. Um, and the, the biggest thing that I remember is just, and it was always around Christmas time, When we had this balcony on the front of our house. I just remember you'd smell the rain before you saw the clouds. It was that type of red dirt country area. And, um, and that smell, as soon as I smell it, just takes me straight back there now, 40 years later. So
0: how... Does someone from Central Queensland arrive into track cycling? Like, how did that <laughs> get BMX riding as a kid? But yeah. a lot of do things like that. But how, how do you get to how do you get to track cycling from there?
1: We watched the nineteen ninety four Commonwealth Games on TV. Like every Australian, we we're just sport mad, and any time that uh, an Australian competition was on the TV, uh, we watched it. Um, and we saw Kathy Watwin go for Australia on the velodrome and she had this amazing bike painted with the Australian flag and she was carrying the Australian flag above her head when she won. And having, you know, had a fair influence already with bikes in our lives, we were just curious by this different discipline. And mum and dad just looked up the yellow pages for the closest club and that was in, uh, it was Walkerton in Mackay and it was about three hours drive from where we lived and you could forgive Parents were saying, look, I was 11. My sister Carrie was 12 at the time. Let's try and find something a little closer to home. But we had already, as a family, traipsed right across the country with BMX that a three-hour drive to Mackay was nothing. We did a four-hour trip from Middlemount across to Perth through the Nullarbor to get to a BMX National. <laughs> so a uh, three-hour drive on the uh, on single-lane bitumen uh, beef road was, was nothing to us. And, and that's so- how we got involved.
0: For how many years? How old were you when you started going to Mackay and how long were you part of, how long did that play out for?
1: Longer than most people would think, uh, um, two years. So we went in one weekend to try it. We absolutely loved it. And my parents said to Kerry and I, look, this is a fair commitment on our part to bring you in each weekend if you want to you know, have a good crack at this sport. And we were like, no, nah, we want to do it. And To their credit, my parents, every weekend for the following two years, picked us up Well, often it was mum because dad was a full-time coal miner, uh, night shift worker. Um, Mum would drive us the 300k in, we'd stay the weekend so we could race Friday night and Sunday morning and she'd drive us the 300k home in time for school on Monday morning, which meant even as young kids, 11, 12, 13, um, we started to miss out on a lot, you know, a lot of our friends having sleepovers, birthdays, discos, events at school because we were away every weekend or we were training every afternoon. So it was just a sheer love of the sport and no reason other. We were never forced to do it by our parents. I remember I actually quit sport when I was about 14 or 15 um, and I was quite academically inclined and I was happy to go into my school studies but I still had to go in every weekend because Kerry wanted to do the sport and I was too young to be left at home on my own. And that's where I met my first coach, Ken Tucker, in Rockhampton, because um, I just sat on the sidelines and he kept every weekend in my ear, why aren't you on a bike? Why aren't you on a bike? And eventually he said to me, if you get back on a bike, I'll coach you. And the, the big thing about that was he had never coached a girl before. He'd only coached boys. So the fact that he was willing to take me on was, was pretty big for me. And I got back on.
0: And had two questions. Um how early did you set, did you have a vision then that you wanted to be an Olympian or was your vision something else? And second question, how um, developed was um, women's track cycling then?
1: I wouldn't say it was hugely developed. Carrie um, and I had race of boys right the way through to probably under 17. We had a couple of girls come along in the latter part of, of our teenage development. Um, I wouldn't say that I was very vocal in terms of I want to go to the Olympics, I want to go to the Commonwealth Games. I just had a lot of fun with cycling um, and that's probably because I wasn't actually very good at it when I first started. I was a short, scrawny little kid, was probably more suited to endurance events than than track sprint, but I found track sprint, short, fast, exciting. Um, my attention span I found two-hour road rides incredibly boring, especially out in country Australia. Where it was just tree, kangaroo, tree, kangaroo. There wasn't a lot to entertain me uh, on those long road rides. So um, track just was more appealing, even though I wasn't physically suited to it. Um, my sister Kerry, though, was a much, was much bigger physically, suited better to, to track sprinting, showed huge talent initially, so there was a lot of attention put on Kerry uh, and I was just kind of tagging along, and in in some ways, I think that helped me because I didn't feel any pressure. She had to absorb a lot of pressure, a lot of interest. She had to learn young, how to deal with media, how to deal with expectation, whereas i was I had a, a real free reign. so I think in in some ways, that was a real blessing for me and for my career in that i didn't I got to see it, but I wasn't immersed in it early. Um, and so it probably wasn't until I was about sixteen I filled out physically. Uh, where I could start to be a little bit more competitive that I thought maybe I had the opportunity to go to an Olympic Games and I thought if I could get to one Olympic Games, I'd be pretty happy with that. And then I got to one Olympic Games and I was like, that is so cool, like I want to go again. And then I had a pretty big accident and then I was like, hang on a minute, I finally realise I'm doing something that's pretty rare and it's not until something happens or someone takes an opportunity from you that you realise just how rare it is or, or how much investment or passion you have for it. And that was when I decided, no, I'm going to hang in, hang on to this as long as I can. And ultimately I hung on for about uh, 16 years for Olympic Games. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how, how it went.
0: But just to unpack that a bit, your first junior Worlds with your yes. sister, how do you reflect? Yes. How do you reflect on that event? Uh,
1: my first Junior Worlds with my sister, I was an absolute pest um, because I was just desperate to be good, but I wasn't that good. <laughs> and she, she was, she was Junior World champion in that year, in two thousand, in Fierentola in Italy. And I was just the annoying little sister um, who who thought I was better than I was. And you know, learned some really hard lessons. Uh, got smacked around on the international stage um you know tested my sister to the nth degree and then when she stepped up to senior ranks and i went to 2001 as as the older junior for the national team i i got a real appreciation for what she went through and it was that year that i i had some success in the 500 meter time trial in Trexletown pennsylvania and um it was at that race where i thought you know what if i could just hone hone myself in give myself some focus and really trust my ability I've got some, I've got some talent here. And um, Kerry had already moved down to the Australian Institute of Sport in Adelaide and I had not. I declined an invitation because I wasn't ready to leave home. And the next year at my first senior world championships, I won a silver in the Kieran and I was offered a second invitation, which doesn't always come around and realized that if I was going to you know, make something of this. I had had to go where the national coaches were, and the national team was um, to give myself the best op- opportunity. And it was hard too because I felt a real loyalty to my first coach, Ken Tucker, who had recognized that I had talent and ability to mentally read a race and withstand pressure and expectation and make decisions very quickly. And he worked with me on a mental and tactical sense while my body took some time as a young girl to catch up. He, I, he didn't hammer me physically. He had real good restraint in that regard. So I had good trust with him and to to leave him and his cohort of, of kids where I felt happy, safe, had fun and then moved to a big city and do it all again was very confronting for me.
0: At what age, Anna?
1: I was 19 when I decided that I would come down full time.
0: Yep, from Rockhampton, I think your family made the yes. call moved to Rockhampton to support your yeah. and Gary's career. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So after two years of driving the beef road every weekend, um, mum and dad decided to take a package from the mine and they moved us to Rockhampton. They chose Rockhampton because it had better coaching facilities, a better velodrome. It was a little bit closer to the um, southeast corner for, you know, big competitions, less meant less driving. Um, bought a barbecue chook shop, you know, worked at Chook Shop for seven days a year, 365 Sorry, we, yeah, 365 days a year for seven years to pay for our sport. And we worked in that shop as well. So we went to school, we worked in the took shop, and we we trained until the scholarship and the invitations down south in Adelaide uh, took us away from home.
0: Amazing. First Commonwealth Games, I think you got bronze and Kerry got goals.
1: Yeah, two goals for Kerry, bronze for me.
0: Goals, yeah. Yes, yes. How do, you, how do you reflect on that first Commonwealth Games? And then, you know, that's setting you up for your first Olympics.
1: I just remember being Kerry's biggest fan. You know, when when she won her first gold medal, I grabbed my camera. It wasn't attached to my phone at the time. You had two different, <laughs> you know, pieces of equipment. And I just followed her to the podium. I followed her to the press conference area and I just took photo. I just remember taking photos. I was so proud of her. And... Um, and then when I won, I got fourth in that 500. And then when I won the bronze in the sprint to be able to be on the podium with her and then celebrate with her and go through the whole routine of of what happens afterwards with her was just, yeah, I couldn't get enough. Um, I found it tiring, but at the same time I couldn't get enough. Um, it was an eye-opener. It was a massive experience. Kathy Freeman was a flag bearer. I went to the opening ceremony. I was the only cyclist that went. Um I was desperate to go because it was my first experience. I really wanted to understand what it was all like. Um, The royal family would come in and, you know, meet athletes and sit in the food court and have lunch and dinner with us. It was just all this stuff that happened on TV all of a sudden was happening right in front of my eyes. And it was a pretty surreal experience.
0: You mentioned only cyclists to go. Do you mind speaking to that?
1: Oh yes. Yeah. So when it comes to the opening ceremonies for Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games, at that time you could have a choice as to whether you went or not. And because cycling was quite early in its competition calendar, a lot of the advice is don't go because you're on your feet a lot. Uh, they're extremely long time frames. You spend a lot of energy, neural energy as well, and can be a detriment to performance, especially if you're competing the next day or two. So. Um, I said to my coach, "I said I, I can't, I can't be here and not go." And they said, "Well, it's your choice." And so I chose to go. Yeah, but that was the only opening ceremony I did in my career until I carried the flag uh, at the Rio Olympics in 2016. I never attended an Olympic opening ceremony until I carried the flag. <laughs> but
0: that, that reason, because of the for that
1: reason, yeah. I-, I mean, some sometimes we weren't even in the country when the Olympics started, um, because we were much later in the. Um, scheduled of events of competition so um and it the further I got through my career the better opportunity I had for performance success so I also was carrying injury as well so there was no way in the world I was going to be on my feet for six hours prior to what I had worked for so hard for four years in that you know every cycle for four years um to let it go by the wayside by attending an opening ceremony
0: so Anna, on a similar thread I think only one female cyclist was able to attend or go to the Athens Olympics in 2004 is that correct
1: That's correct yes so the way qualification works for the Olympic games is you 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 get nine riders over an ag- aggregated period of of time and competition scores and and it's one per country um and we knew that we were facing one per country for, for the Athens games. But when Carrie came to my door, the, uh, the Del Monte, um, where we were staying for the Australian Institute of Sport, just in tears, um, I didn't really know what, what was wrong. So I remember sitting on the bed with her and just having my arm around her, waiting for her just to gather herself a little bit to tell me what was going on. But then she said, look, I just can't do this anymore. My back's too bad. I can barely walk. I can barely, you know, I can't do anything without pain and I have to I have to go home. I, I, she was withdrawing from the competition for Athens and my heart just broke for her because as a sister, you just, you have this desperation to want to help or fix anything and I couldn't do anything to help her. And then on the other side, the competitor in me is going, well, that's one less person I have to worry about in terms of, you know, trying to get to the, to the Olympic Games. And the hard thing is when both of us have that dream but there's only one one opportunity, it's it's pretty awful. And the reason for that was at that time we didn't have equal event quota men to women in our sport at the Olympic Games. At World Championships and Commonwealth Games we did, but at the Olympic Games it still hadn't caught up. Um, Women's track sprint cycling had only been in the Olympics since 1988, so it was already a very young sport for women, not for men, but for women. Um, And it was still taking some time to bring the event calendar to an even quota between the two genders. Beijing would be similar. Beijing was one spot as well. And I know we'll probably get to that, but after having my accident, it was incredibly intense for me to go through the rehabilitation and prove that I could be fit to fill the one quota spot that I had qualified to selectors. But in doing so, I became the factor that stopped my sister achieving her goal, and that's that's some very heavy emotional baggage to try and carry, um, because because for the better part of eight years, I I went out of my way to ensure that my my dreams became my reality, and, and I didn't assist my sister at all in achieving hers. So that that's that's pretty difficult to get my head around. Still, but. What Carrie and I both agreed to today is that we did the best we could with what skills we had at the time. We were very young. I was twenty at my first games. I was twenty-four at my second games. So she was only one year older. And um sadly she retired in two thousand and nine and the IOC would create an even event calendar for two thousand and twelve where we could take two women. But unfortunately she had retired by then. So we just we just we're two kids that fell in love with a sport at a time where we didn't have equal opportunity to our our counterparts, sadly.
0: Yes, on the flip side to that, you must have sharpened each other and strengthened
1: <laughs> each
0: other so much for, you know, I think of the Campbell sisters and, you know, just how much better each of them must have been for having each other.
1: I tell you what, we didn't even just fight for, you know, winning on the track. And, I mean, we we crashed each other. We were that intense, like... And we, But we were the best of friends off the track. But we would fight for the top bunk. We would fight for shotgun seat in the car. We would fight for the last scrap of food on the table. Like I think where I fell in the family line out, that being me being the baby of the family, I was always competitive. I was always annoying. I was always after things, stealing things, grabbing things in their space, in their room. And, you know, I was just that little sister. Carrie, on the other hand, was the little sister to our older pair of siblings, but she was still the bigger sister to me. And the bigger sister naturally comes with an instinct of protection and, you know, looking out for for them. So in some ways, mentally and emotionally, I think that she was impinged by the simple fact of where she fell in the family line out. And, And I say this because she's one of these people that you want everything good for she's just such a good-hearted good soul human being and i want to beat the shit out of anyone that says or does anything bad to her and yet i have done so much <laughs> myself so i've got to be careful not to beat myself up given that we both chose to be in the in the circumstances that we did um but she's done amazing since she's left the sporting world and sporting career and she has still achieved immensely in sport to be a dual commonwealth champion and world medalist world and a record holder as well she broke numerous records at the national level commonwealth level um you know she she should hold her head pr- head very high with pride for the things that she's contributed to our sport
0: just bringing a link back to farming families and our listeners um what would you say about the importance of those sibling relationships and that relationship with your parents? We've got farming families that two brothers, brother and sister, brothers and sisters, mum and dad are all working together on a farm in isolation in intense times, at times. What would you say about how to nurture and support and the importance of those relationships?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the relationships are so important, um, but so is space. Within the relationships, in order for the them to come back together, to be able to function, work, compete, whatever it is that's required for the betterment of the family unit, and that comes with you know being really honest, having good communication, understanding where the goals are, what the goals are, how to achieve them, Um, but everyone has to be valued in their position and their place as well, and it didn't matter what I did or where I got to or what I achieved if I could not come home and sit at a dinner table with my family and not be pig-headed or think I was too good they would bring me down the, the, the pegs required to to remember the simple fact that we're we're all coal mining country family you know that's that's where our roots are that's where our community is and no matter how far we go in the world that's where we come back to that's our base that's our foundation and And that foundation gave me an incredible strength to be able to venture out and come back, venture out and come back, venture out and come back. Um, And it's kept me grounded in my my life, I think. So um, I would not be anywhere if it was not for my family.
0: Thank you for saying that. So if it's okay, Anna, I might just sit back for a moment. I'd love, I think you got a world record at the 2004 athens olympics um beating a world record that had been set just minutes before um and just to frame this up then four years and i think a major accident that i'd love for you to speak to um somehow around which you managed to get back on a bike 11 days after that accident and then you know getting through rehabilitation to recover for your 2008 Beijing Olympics. Do you mind if I just sit back and you just give us a sense of Athens, what happened in between, and then, you know, getting set and competing at Beijing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I get selected at the Athens Olympics and my sister comes to the airport to see me off, which is huge for her to do that. Given that she desperately wanted to be on that plane, Um, my parents give me a gift to put in my bag for when I break the world record, not if I break the world record, but for when I break the world record, which I rolled my eyes to because I was still three tenths of a second off being able to achieve that. I go overseas for four weeks ahead of the Athens Games and train with a team, and I find myself at my first Olympics in Athens. And my first event is the 500 meter time trial. I'm the world champion. It's the first time that I've been world champion, which means I have to watch every other woman in the world post a time over 500 metres and be the last to contest posting my time. So I have to sit there and withstand knowing that I'm chasing an Olympic record. I'm chasing a world record. And the rider before me uh, from China posts that time. And... For me to be in contention of a medal, I have to ride a personal best, let alone if I'm going to win the race, it has to be an Olympic and and world record. No woman in the world up until this point has ridden a sub 34.000 second time trial in order to achieve that. Um, I warm up away from the centre of the track because at my first Olympic Games I've done a lot of mental preparation in the lead up to this and removing as much extra stimulus as possible was the goal. Um, I'd been... Talked to by my psychologist and my coach every day that I got on the track that I would be going to my first Olympics, that I would be chasing an Olympic record of 34.1 to beat. And the nerves day by day got less and less as I became more familiar and that became more normal. I get to the track and I start warming up and I come up for my race and I've forgotten my gloves. So my coach runs down and he grabs my gloves. He comes back up and I'm like, I said, I've forgotten my glasses. And he runs back down and he comes back up and he goes, Anna, you don't need glasses. You've got a visor on your helmet. So clearly very, very nervous. I remember walking up to the start line feeling like my legs literally are two pillars of concrete. Like I just wanted to assist them with my hands to pick them up to move them. The nerves, the adrenaline, the excitement just filled my body and made it feel very, very heavy. I remember seeing a red flash go past me. Which was a Chinese rider. And I remember the crowd going nuts. So I knew she was quick. I don't recall what time exactly she rode, but I just looked at my coach, Martin Barras, and he, with his, a smile on his face, he said, Last ride at the Olympics, 34 1 to beat. And instantly, I felt calm. I felt capable to breathe. The weight of my legs subsided. Because all of a sudden that cue, that what, that comment that he gave me that I had been given every day for two months leading up to this race made it seem normal when very familiar. So I got on the track, got on my bike, clipped in and the biggest race of my life, 20 years of age, I'm starting to take deep breaths. And then all of a sudden this fly comes along and it just starts, you know, these just pesky flies that just buzz around and they stick like glue. But once I get my hands set in the handlebars, I don't like to move them. So I'm, I'm, I, you could clearly see I'm irritated. I'm shaking my elbows. I'm blowing at, I'm blowing at my hands. And ten seconds before the biggest race of my life, I'm more more concerned about a fly than what I'm, I should be doing in front of me. I don't remember what happens next. I remember the halfway pitch, of one lap because the, the sound of the crowd cha- changed from being loud to extremely loud. So I knew I was close to the time. The next thing that I remember is crossing the finish line and in desperation just looking straight up to the scoreboard, which was right in the centre of the of the corner of the velodrome, to see what time I had ridden. And all I saw was this, um, this uh, red number one box next to my name. And I I just lost, lost my shit because I realized I've I've won the Olympic Games. And as I got closer, trying to look through the tears in my eyes, I, I was curious on the time. And I couldn't understand it because I saw 0.9 and all this sort of stuff. So but it wasn't until I saw that green number uh with a world record next to my name. And I wrote a world record and I wrote 33.952. So not only did I I win that Olympic title, but I I rode an Olympic record, a world record, and I was the first woman to ride a sub 34 second time trial. Now my race in 500 meters is two laps of the velodrome, right? I was so in the moment that I celebrated for six laps. Like my coach was just trying to get me off the track. I did more laps in celebration than I did in competition at the Athens Olympic Games. And in the end I finally came off the track and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm the Olympic champion. And, um, I, I had my medal ceremony and did all, all the media stuff. And and then my head was like, hang on a minute, mum and dad gave me, a, gave me something in my bag for when I broke the world record. So I'm like keen to get back to the village and I get back there and I rummage through my bag because I can't even remember where I put it. And there's this little box wrapped in newspaper and it had 33.999 on it. And I open it up and I'm thinking, oh, it's, you know, perfume or sapphire and diamond earrings you know mum's probably gone shopping and got me something nice. and um and as I unraveled it it was this cloth it was just this white cloth with black edging and embroidered on it they had I'm a coal country kid and I'm proud to be a coal miner's daughter and I sat down for a minute and I looked at that and I thought you know what I am I am I'm, I'm a coal miner's daughter and it was really nice because The intent of it was no matter what I achieved, to remember who I am and where I come from and the people that helped me achieve it. Um, And I got my I got my sapphire diamond earrings when I got home, but (laughs) it was just a nice thing. I think that I still have; I've kept it as a reminder. Um, You know, so you go anyway. You go out. I go out. Twenty years of age, Olympic champion. I further pick up a bronze medal in the individual sprint, and I'm just so addicted to the whole Olympic Games and the potential to win that I want to commit to another four-year cycle so I commit to Beijing and in that time frame the 500 meter time trial which I won is axed from the program to make way for BMX and because the IOC saw cycling as track road mountain bike and BMX so to bring in two new medals you had to take out two medals which meant in a vote unfortunately the women's 500 was axed in the men's kilo this would later kind of be the catalyst to the London Olympics having an equal event quota because you can't take from an already depleted women's event opportunity at the Olympic Games. So we go forward to Beijing, no more 500. I've just got the individual sprint, the cat and mouse game. And I'm in the throes of qualifying for this. I'm at the third of qualifying five events in Los Angeles and I make the Kirin final. And my coach comes to me and he says, we're seven months from the Olympics. So the last thing we need are any accidents or any injuries. And if the girls get rough, just go to the back, make as late and fast move around the outside as possible. And that's exactly how the race unfolded. But as I made my move, I clipped the wheel of an opponent in front of me, which is something that happens all the time in my sport because of the nature of it, the close racing, the fixed-wheel bikes, the speeds that we, we hit. And in clipping that wheel, I... Um, I don't, again, have a lot of memory of what happened, but I hit the deck. um, I hit it hard. I remember feeling instantly nauseous. I remember feeling instant pain in my neck, and then it goes black. And then I remember waking up on the bottom of the track, screaming my neck, my neck, my neck, and then it goes black. And then I wake up because I have pain in my leg. And when you fall at the speeds we do on a velodrome and you slide, skin against wood at 65 k's an hour um you know for 50 60 meters you get friction burns so i i had burns all the right down down the right side of my body and as they had rolled me over on the stretcher someone had placed their hand on that burn and it was it was hot it was so hot that it woke me up from from being unconscious and um and then from there i i, I stayed conscious right through to the hospital um where a number of tests were taken to To show that I had broken my neck, I fractured the C2 vertebra, which was the second down from the skull. And my sister Kerry was with me. She was at that World Cup also trying to qualify for Beijing. She was with me in the the ambulance. She was with me in the hospital. And she was with me um, when the doctor came in and said that, you know, you've broken your neck and you'll need to be in a neck brace for 10 weeks. And I remember just the silence in the room, my my. Swanye, Bertie Mae, Kerry and me on the hospital bed and the tears just started to run you know because it just dream gone out the window and head was racing and you know I was having all the burns scrubbed and there was just so much going on that by the time I got to my hospital room at two o'clock in the morning when my coach was leaving I said I grabbed him with my left hand and I said I'll still be right for Beijing and He just patted my hand down. and He's like, don't worry about that now. We'll just just get you better. And I said, no, 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 just hear me out. I'll still be right for for the Games. And see, I don't know why, but I went to math and I've got seven months until the Olympics and I've got 10 weeks in a neck brace. Once that comes off, I've got four and a half months. There's plenty of time for me to get back and be fit and active and ready to to go and race the Games. I had no real comprehension of what, what had just happened to me. And I think my youth and naivety probably played part in this. But to his credit, by the time I get home a week later, he has gathered my team, my team being, you know, the medical team, the physio team, the mechanics, everyone involved in in making an athlete's um, high-performance journey possible brought them together to go right how do we still make this happen how do we get her back on the bike and so they set up this portable adjustable clothes rack over my ergo because one of the things that I couldn't do when I broke my neck was support the weight of my own head I didn't realize how heavy my head was and so they set up this portable clothes rack for me to just sit there balanced I had dislocated my shoulder so I was still comfortable enough to hold hold the rack sit on the bike and just pedal and that's that's how I started 10 days after I fell and you know, to keep it keep this story in the context so that it fits into your podcast, um, <clears throat> I pushed really hard through that rehabilitation. I, I didn't like being told what I, I couldn't do. I asked what I could do. And <clears throat> as my body injury improved, what happened was I sustained mental injury as a result of that. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize if a lot of farmers get injured. on the land using equipment is the body will heal but there will be an overlay of um, mental injury that carries back into how how do you get back into the environment where you got so injured and and continue on without being affected. For me, by the time my body healed, I got back to the track, I literally froze because my head's telling me to walk in but my body's telling me to run away because last time I was here I got hurt and it's kind of like when you burn your hand on a pot, you want to check it a couple of times before you recommit to grabbing that pot. And so I had to do a lot of reprogramming in my head to trust myself in the environment that even though I had one accident and it was a severe accident, I had been there a million times and been safe. And so there was this series of steps that I did with a psychologist and my coach to actually feel mentally capable of, one, being in that environment and, two, competing in that environment again before we could even start to talk about the Olympic Games and Beijing. So there was a whole series of processes Between accident and the Beijing Olympic Games, the biggest one being that even though I had crashed at the third of five qualifying events, by the time the fifth one had run, I'd done enough to qualify one spot. I just just scraped by by a few points. And selectors didn't believe, with a broken neck, I'd be fit enough to fill the position. So four and a half months after I fell, and two and a half months before the games, I had to fulfil a fitness trial. I was the only one required to perform this fitness trial. So even if I was still not fast enough to ride this time, I wouldn't go, if, even if I could beat the others in a contest. So there was a lot of pressure. Um, and I went and I didn't just ride the time they required. I rode a personal best time to get my name on that plane ticket. But had they have put me in a sprint match, I wouldn't have been able to turn my head and and see I would have lost the race. So I was probably fortunate that it was just a, a straight fitness trial because I couldn't turn my head till four weeks before the Games. Um, I'm really proud that this day that I, in seven months, swapped a neck brace for an Olympic silver medal. But what a lot of people don't realise that had I not have passed that fitness test, the next person likely to go in my place was my own sister Kerry. And that's why, you know, it's hard at times when you're not even the best in your family, let alone your country, and then have to um, sit at home and watch watch your sibling go and do something that you love. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those stories that is just the more I process it outside of being an athlete, the more I realise the depth of it, how much is involved. Um, and I have learned a lot more about my career since I retired than when I was in it. Um, so that's that's Athens to Beijing in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> I appreciate your openness. It's um amazing. I, I love that notion that courage is action in spite of fear, and for you to, to work through that that fear of competing again and going back into that same environment. Um and to do it with such a time pressure, it's quite incredible. How important is it to have that support around you so many of our farmers are doing it that they it's a complex and it's an intense game farming and so many people when they're not on their a game they go it alone. yeah how important is it to have coaches counselors psychologists others helping you navigate the mental journey and um how important is that deeper work mentally in order to achieve
1: I think it's absolutely critical because we are very good at being our worst critic. We are not good at being our best cheerleader. And there has been no one who has chastised, criticised, brutalised me better than me. I can tell you that right now. No one in the media, no rivalry that I have ever faced. I have been my worst enemy um, on every occasion. And so to be able to have someone, be it a psychologist, a counsellor, a mate, a coach, a mentor, a teacher, someone that you trust to sit there to listen without judgement because when shit's going around in your head a million miles an hour, it sounds very different to when you verbalise it and you can articulate it. And to have someone sit there and purely listen, judgement-free, often will allow me in my experience to sit back and go, oh, that's a bit rough. Oh, that now that's, that sounds terrible now that I've said it out loud. Um, And so just having that space to be able to do that's really, really important. For me, the biggest lesson that I learned in that period between Athens and Beijing was the difference between what if and what is. Um, When I had my accident, I overheard a conversation that I was two millimeters from a clean break. Now that scared me at 23 years of age that it Two millimeters almost cost me my life. And at best, would have been a quadriplegic. So I started going down this what if path. You know, what if that two millimeters hadn't been there? Would I have been happy with my life up until that point? I was just riding a bike. I hadn't had a family. I was married. There were so many things I wanted to do. And I was starting to analyze what I had and didn't have in my life. And and my coach, he kind of just it did, he did just that. He sat there and he, he heard me and he goes, okay. Miss Anna, you're asking the right questions. You're just using one wrong word. Don't ask what if, ask what is. What if is driven by the fear and doubt of what we don't want to have happen. For me, what if I died in that accident? What if I get put in front of a soccer goal and I miss the goal for the team? What if I buy a house and I can't upkeep the mortgage? What if I go for a job and I don't get there, I uh, to go to the interview and I don't get the job? Um, there are so many what ifs that we can be stimulated by the fear of the outcome that often we we get an emotional response to those thoughts that force us to make decisions and lead us down those paths anyway. If I tell you not to think of pink elephants, what do you think of? Pink elephants, right? So my coach, Martin Barras tried to get me to look at the context of what is of my accident and the what is was simply that two millimetres saved my life. So I went from being fearful of two millimetres to being utterly thankful for because I started to look at the tangible reality information I had in front of me as opposed to the emotional response to the situation. So what if is great for contingency planning, but when you're looking at situational response, what if is crippling because it's emotionally driven. So having that ability to look at the what is of a situation allows me to remove the emotion, deal with the information I have, and therefore make a better decision in the process to to get myself out out of that situation now i wouldn't have been able to learn that recognize that or appreciate it had someone else not given me that perspective because i was clouded by fear and emotion um so support is really critical however who you choose to have in your support circle is as critical because you can have the wrong person advise you you can have the wrong person um be emotional Um, And so it's really important to find those people you trust, but also who fit certain moulds, I guess. So um, when I was emotional, I didn't want someone to tell me to, oh, look, just, you know, take a breath, it'll be fine. I needed someone with an empathetic ear. But when I was really, really driven and needed some perspective on the other side in the competitive circle, I didn't want that um, person with empathy. I wanted that person to, you know, really kind of give me a whack where required. So... Um, I think it's really very important because at the end of the day, in a competitive environment, when you have two athletes who are almost identical, it comes down to who's done the best mental preparation. And mental preparation is getting to know who you are, how you respond to pressure, what emotion response you have and learning how to recognise that, be aware of yourself and um, follow the steps to, to be able to get the best out of yourself given those circumstances
0: you feel like that relates to just performance in anything, even outside
1: yeah. of sport? I do. Yeah, so I do. I try so. to practice it and I have practiced it a lot and I am not perfect and I still have a husband who sits there and goes, okay, Anna, take a breath <laughs> uh, or chill the F out or uh, it's not that bad um, or, no, you need to come back and have a look at this. So I still have really great people who allow me to be me, but also who can give me that little tap on the shoulder and go, just hang on a minute, I think you're overanalyzing here.
0: Anna between Beijing and London, different type of personal and professional challenge. But you know, sometimes we see you and we see athletes on the podium and with the medals around the neck, and we don't in any way appreciate the adversity and the journey in between can you can you give us an insight as to what then played out for you between I think it was 08 and And 2000?
1: yes so I was I, I got that silver in Beijing and it was a huge achievement and a massive relief but I was still one step shy of where I wanted to be I wanted to be on that gold medal podium I had been there in Athens in 04 And I had been absolutely annihilated by Victoria Pendleton in the sprint final in Beijing, and she won the gold medal uh, and she was, you know, absolutely deserving of it. And being one step shy after everything that I'd been through really motivated me to see what I was capable of with a clean run in the next Olympic cycle. Now, I say that because I realised after my accident I was operating far under my full capacity even though I had already been world and Olympic champion up until that point, I did not fully understand my strengths and my weaknesses and my accident forced me to have to look at that. And I learned a lot about controlling the controllables, how important the people were to, that you chose to have around you. I, I had an appreciation for now because there was a real, real chance that life almost ended for me. And I was really excited to see what I could pull out of myself given all these learnings. And the athlete that turned up in London was a very, very different athlete to the one that turned up in Beijing. And this is why I often say that my my career can really be defined by pre and post-accident. Now, pre-accident, I won two of my 11 world titles. Post-accident, I won nine of my 11 world titles. And I think that a lot of this came from my simple awareness of, self and also gratitude for what I was doing, where I was going, who I was doing it with. And it just changes your whole outlook. And so for me, that coupled with the fact that I had a great team who was prepared to challenge me and test me and put to me that if I wanted to go from an outcome of silver in Beijing to an outcome of gold in London, I had to make changes to my process and application and my preparation phases in between. So everything was going to be different. Everything had to change. Um, and so we my coach sort of this uh, project called Know Thy Enemy, which we took from the samurai. And it's not about getting to know your opponent, it's about getting to know you, which was really where we had started the path um, leading into Beijing. So what we did was we analyzed my opponent Vicky Pendleton, looked for patterns of preferential behavior, patterns of avoidance, looked for where her strengths and weaknesses were. And then started to nut out a plan of how we could negate that. And once we had that plan, we then started to upskill myself around how to implement those plans. And so it was a very, very long and intricate, terribly frustrating process at times. Because when you're upskilling, you're basically trying to, trying to, uh, wipe out old habitual habits and create new ones because when when you're under pressure and you make decisions, they have to be auto almost on autopilot. So you're trying to, to get rid of all your old habits and create new ones, so to speak. Um, and it's a very slow and frustrating process, like I said. So we realised that Victoria Pendleton, when she was in the back position of a sprint match, meaning her opponent was in front of her, she won 95% of the time. Like she was hugely successful and very, very strong in that position. However, on the few occasions when she was in the front position, her success of that um, race dropped significantly. So we realised that the best chance for me to win was to force her from her strongest and most practised position and put her into her weakest and least practised position. So we trialled this at the World Championships a year and a half out from London where I performed what's called a track stand, and that's balancing the bike in a stationary position, one, to see if she could perform the skill, and two, if she couldn't, to see if I could capitalise from running um, from behind her. And it would be the first time in six years she wouldn't be world champion. Um, It was exciting for us, but it was also nerve-wracking because we had showed our hand a year and a half out before the Olympics, so her and her team had the chance to create a counter-strategy to our strategy. Um, we decided that off of the analysis work we did, a lot of people look for what people, the pattern of behavior people choose to do as opposed to the pattern of behavior people avoid. So I didn't do that skill again or that race strategy again for a year and a half until I met Vicky for the gold medal final. I practiced it every day at training with teammate, in particular Alex Bird, and then we practice plan B, C, D, E, F, J, H, I, K in case I couldn't pull off plan A. So long story short, we go to London. I meet Pendleton for the gold medal final. The gold medal final is a best of three matchup. The first race, she draws the front. It's a random draw of position, which is perfect. We leave her there, uh, but I lose by a thousandth of a second, which the rele- a relegation comes from commissaires due to a physical collision 30 metres before the line. So they decide to step in and change the result of the race because had that collision not have happened, they believe momentum would have carried me forward for the win. So in front of a uh, heavy London crowd at the London Olympics, the commissaire relocates the British rider and, and gives me the win, and that's met by 6,000 boos. So the intensity of this environment is absolutely like you could cut, the, cut it with a knife. And then we go up for race two and the position automatically reversed. So now I'm in the front position and Pendleton is in the back. And this is where I have to execute a race that I have not performed in reality of competition for a year and a half, but have done in training that she hasn't seen me do for a year and a half. And I believe she was anticipating one race and I was able to execute the other one. And that's how I believe I was able to win my second Olympic gold medal.
0: Years of strategy, just execute. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's sometimes what I believe too, Gary West used to always say to me, sometimes the person who executes better is the one who wins because physically there's not anything that separates them. So and that that execution comes down, <clears throat> it comes down to having a strategy in the first place that you believe and you buy into and that strategy is created <clears throat> through collaboration of good people that you trust. And then it is being able to understand the environment that you're trying to execute it in and having the skills to one make decisions without hesitation back your instinct and back your plan to execute it on competition day
0: i'd love everyone to listen to that last 30 seconds again because for me that is good strategy in farm business leadership right there in a nutshell it's amazing um how what you're sharing can apply so perfectly for our farming families anna Course. Yes,
1: it's um, what I have found since I retired is that I don't pretend to be an expert in any field other than mine. And nothing that I say is rocket science. A lot of it is a regurgitation of what I've been taught, but it can go across so many professions and it can impact personal lives and perspectives so profoundly that that's why I enjoy telling my story now is because I've put some time to understanding what people are curious about but also me doing what I've done is one thing but actually being able to articulate to people who don't know my profession but can draw something from the lesson, the experience, the thought, the feeling, the reapplication, the resilience, uh, the challenge, the need for change. There are so many things in there that are just relevant to life in general and that's what gives me so much joy about telling my story now.
0: When you do share your story and you speak in front of tens or hundreds, what are some of the focus points and the messages that you want people taking from your time with them?
1: The biggest one for me, and I say it is the most profound lesson I've had in my life, is the difference between what if and what is. Um, I think it's really important and there is a need for change but we don't like change because change takes us from what we know and are comfortable and moves us to a space of what we don't know and are uncomfortable and we have a preference to be comfortable. Therefore, a lot of people in their lives choose not to um, change or, or they like to to stay with what, what they know. Um, and resilience, a lot of people ask me about being resilient and how do I stay motivated and it's interesting because, I didn't know I was capable of what I I was, especially after my accident until I found myself in that position. And a lot of people don't until they've hit rock bottom or their backs up against a wall because that's where you ask some pretty harrowing questions. The first one, is it worth it? The second one, I need help. And then you start to learn, you know, I'm pretty vulnerable here if I've got to ask for help. And we often see vulnerability as a weakness, but it is actually a strength because you are reaching out to better yourself and connect with other people along the way and anyone who reaches out to you to ask for help understand that the respect uh, and magnitude of that moment both for you and them is really profound and so having the time and space to respond is really really critical um you know that for me you actually spend more time battling, fighting, dealing with change, adversity, loss and defeat than you do actually get a chance to win and succeed and shine and have moments where you can celebrate. So even if it's really small, small moments are worth celebrating because when they add up over a long period of time, then you can see it's a big big achievement, big improvement. But at the time, for example, one-tenth of a second might not seem like it's much of an improvement, much of a win, but, hey, that's an improvement. That's that's the best you have ever been by one tenth of a second, and because wins are so rare, I've won eleven world titles in my career. I've lost a further twenty nine attempts over you know twenty two years. I have spent more time losing. I have spent more time being beaten, but I've won more than anyone else because I've been prepared to stick through the losses, take the lesson to better give myself the chance of success following them. So, even though there are lows constantly there is always a chance to bounce and come back up the other side. So where I think I have been successful is I feel the pain of those low moments because I'm an emotional being, but then I hate that feeling and then I look for a way to get out of it. Um, there's probably only been one time in my career where I've been stuck in that low moment and that was dealing with the transition away from sport. I'd been in it for 22 years after my last Olympics in Rio where I carried the flag and I I won my sixth medal. And for the first time in my life, I had this overwhelming sense of freedom and I loved it. I could wake up whenever I wanted to, I could eat whatever I wanted to, drink whatever I wanted to, go wherever I wanted to, didn't have to report to drug testing agencies. Like it was amazing. And to me, that was like, is this this what life normally is like, right? Because my normal is not normal. For a lot of people and then my team got back together to focus for the next olympic cycle of tokyo and then i had nowhere to go every day and then i didn't have the same people to go and talk to and and have the ear of regularly and then i felt very isolated and lonely and then i started to doubt my decision should i have quit because clearly i'm struggling with this it's not maybe it's not the right decision maybe i shouldn't have quit And then I got deeper and then I got, I struggled because a lot of people recognized me and the only conversations I felt I had were interviews. So I shied away from meeting new people. So my friendship circle got smaller. My ability to try something new or my willingness to try something new shrunk because I thought people expected me to be successful in every realm that I tried, just like I had been in sports. So I sunk lower. Um, I went through divorce. My coach, died from MND. And so I just felt like I started to get hit after hit and sleep became hard to find. And because sleep became hard to find, I couldn't recover mentally or emotionally. So I just slipped deeper. And in the end, I was diagnosed with severe grief and severe anxiety. And I needed some help to get out of that hole. It took me a while. And what it took me a while to get my head around was understanding that Sport, when you're in it or whatever, professional field, farming, you know, life, business, um, it's a really big world. It runs like clockwork. There's a lot of attention, a lot of adulation. And the highs for me were incredibly high. And when that world dissipated, I realized life was far bigger with far less people who gave a shit, checked in or cared. There was no attention. The adulation was gone. And normal felt low in comparison to what I had experienced. So, I was trying to calibrate what normal was in life, understand who I was without sport and where I fit in this world again. And it took me some time to understand why I was struggling with it and find some peace and solace in who I was. Um, it was really a really trying time in my life. And it took running into my now husband, Nick, who just helped me find hobbies that I was interested in taking on and it was painting and pottery because I loved that as a kid. It allowed me to get into a circle of people that didn't judge, who loved creativity, who loved failure because you can always make something new if you stuff up a painting or, you know, sculptures don't have to be perfect. And that taught me to colour outside the lines again and that taught me to have a bit more confidence in trying something new. I also, in losing my marriage and being mid-30s, believed I wasn't going to be able to have children, so I wanted to adopt children. I couldn't adopt children because I was single, Um, and it took me a year and a half to get on the information session for adopting children in Australia, and then they said to me, you may as well not come because as soon as a heterosexual couple steps in ahead of you, they will get preference. So then I was advised to look at fostering. I went to a foster session for a company, and I was absolutely blown away by the fact that this one organisation needed to house 600 children a night in South Australia alone. I just, as an Australian, could not believe we had this need that I had no idea about, of kids who had no choice about coming into this world, that had nowhere to sleep, no one to love them, and I I couldn't just sit there and not do anything about it. So I trained to become a foster parent and I cared for children on an emergency basis, basis between the age of four and eight. I chose that age group because all of my friends' childrens were that age. Um, and, and I will say this, my, the age I chose was the oldest age of the cohort of people I came through in the foster care system group that I trained with. Everyone wanted infants to two-year-olds because they had the least damage mentally and emotionally coming out of you know, some pretty trying situations. But it was working with these at-risk kids you know kids that had come into my care at midnight absolutely petrified taken from home from a place that they loved that they knew that they were were safe or or a place that they weren't safe but they were you know brought into a complete stranger's home in the time frame that I had them they learned to trust me they learned to smile they learned to engage they learned to you know trust themselves again and i sat there and i thought you know what if I if these kids can do this, I can step back into a world that I've been a little bit nervous to step back into sport. But I also, these kids told me I had skills, I had the ability to work with people, I had the ability to understand emotion, I had the ability to engage, um, you know, with heightened um, responses. And they inspired me to get back into sport. So I took on a role as a general manager for the Birmingham Commonwealth Games as a volunteer. And I loved it. I love being back around the team again. I love being behind the scenes to help someone else have the chance of success because my cup was full as a competitor. And that has now led me to being the chef of the mission for the Australian Olympic team in Paris next year and, and leading our Australian Olympians at what will be my fifth game. So um, it's amazing how how little experiences and moments can be really big roundabout circles, but life's really hard at times. And when you just desperately want to stop, I encourage people just to look up and reach out because you are worth it and there are people who love you and can help you through those moments and there is so much that we each can offer this world to be better. Um, yeah, I really encourage people to to talk and seek help if they need it mentally and emotionally. And I think, I think society is getting to a point where We're becoming aware that this is really important, that there is a need for support in this area and that it is normal. It's normal to have really hard times. It's normal to hit rock bottom, um, but you can't come out of it.
0: That's such an amazing message, Anna. Thank you. And gosh, in that there's insights for our families listening about some of you might be transitioning off the farm, you know, at the back end of your career and, there's insights there on how to navigate that. But also just your, your comments around um, reaching out and getting help and getting support to get through tough times, I think, will resonate so strongly with so many of our Aussie farmers. So thank you so much for that. A couple of last questions, if I could. Yeah. So much of your career was you focused on getting a result on behalf of a team with amazing support. How does it feel now to turn perhaps your attention to being in the service of others, Um, be it foster kids, family, um, other younger athletes coming through? Because I I ask this because so many of our farmers I see just are focusing on, you know, making their farm the best they can and driving towards more revenue, more profit, higher yields, better animals. But I feel like there's a real gift in setting down goals in addition to that, that is about how you can serve others, add value to the lives of others and make an impact. And I guess sort of want to, if you're okay, have one of the messages that come from this podcast as a bit of a challenge to our farmers, just to check in, in addition to striving for the goals that you have for you and your farm, what could you do that is serving others adding value and making an impact um be it young people old people community whatever how's it been for you uh, post your career to to make that shift to being in the service of others
1: yeah it's um i've loved being involved with charity and i've loved being involved with community groups right through since i can remember like if I go visit my parents, my parents are, are caretakers of the local cemetery, you know. So if I go visit my parents, I've got to be prepared to go with a snip and, and mow around the graves. So it's not, we've always been community-minded in a lot of ways. I I find it gives me great perspective to be involved with others and in the community. And it gives me, it fills my cup in a totally different way that... Some of the things that I have been through can be justified by maybe helping someone else not go through it. You know, when you share your story or experience, you offer insight to someone that can take it and recognise they might be going down the same path and just creating a little bit more ease for them either to get through it or to avoid a situation that otherwise um, my sharing would would not have given them that awareness. Um, In terms of you know, encouraging people to put themselves out there to support other people. Um, Yeah, for me, it's one thing being in the environment as an athlete at the Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games, the World Championships. It is very different being behind the scenes, trying to create an environment for someone else to have the shot of that one day going right. And it's hugely stressful. It is trying. Um, but hugely rewarding as well. I won't win a gold medal again. I won't get a headline. And I'm very okay with that because if I can play a small part for someone else achieving those moments, that that I just feel so lighthearted and I get so much joy and ability to sleep from that. Um, and it'll just make me smile, you know, it's, they may not even know what part I've played but the fact that I've worked so far for 15 months to try and make that environment right for the next athlete who steps into Paris in six months' time, they will have no idea what I've done because I can tell you right now my eyes have been opened since I've been in this role what other people before me have done. Um, it's been great because I've learned more about myself um, because I open myself up to questions um and it and it forces me to think about my experiences and what could have been done differently to ease them you know and that insight can be really powerful to someone else who's having a hard time of it you know and um and i think it would just strengthen the community and relationships in an area for farming that is already pretty isolated um I think it would certainly add to the strength of those relationships and the support network that could be offered and and just help people not feel so isolated and in what they're going through.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Um what are you most excited about? About your future and your you're still so young, you've got such a sort of such a career and future ahead of you. What are you most excited about It? what's ahead of you?
1: Oh, look, I'm excited to be a part of the team again. Um, and I am really excited about telling stories of the athletes of the teams that I'm going to lead. And I challenge them to be genuine in who they are and telling what they've been through. I challenge the media to listen to their story and, um, and I challenge people to understand that winning is hard, and winning doesn't just stop at a gold medal. Winning is silver medal, bronze medal, making a final, making the team, personal best, being being a good sportsman uh, a teammate, you know, sportsman or sportswoman, um, and the, you know, being a gold medal person. I'm I really am excited about how. I can help these sports people be good storytellers and inspire Australia when they tune into the Olympic Games because I think we forget, one, how hard it is to win and, two, they're people at the end of the day, um, just like all of us.
0: And a last question, if I could. What would you say to a young budding country or Aussie kid, 10, 12 years old, who has a dream, has a goal, as an aspiration, what would be a comment you'd make to them?
1: Have fun. That's it. A young kid just needs to have fun.
0: Perfect. Anna, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. It's just been amazing to have this time with you. Thank you so much for your openness, your willingness to share. But just I think we only get a sense really of just the grit and the determination and the challenge that you've had to navigate and overcome in order to succeed and achieve at the highest level thank you so much for your time and um yeah take care and look forward to watching your journey and the olympic athletes journey from here
1: thank you jeremy i i hope everyone's enjoyed listening and um yeah i'm sure i'm going to see plenty of you around.
0: Perfect, Anna. Take care and thank you so much. These yes. The single greatest track female track cyclist of all time, and you get a sense of just how much energy, effort, persistence, grit, you know, sweat and tears went into that incredible career. Um, the thing that just just resonates for me though, is just just how genuine and just how um authentic and how humble Anna is for all of her achievement. Um, yeah, thank you, Anna. I really appreciated that and really enjoyed it. And there were so many insights that I think are just so relevant to business, but to uh, living life and to doing family and you know, to reaching out for support in tough times and to having a mindset perhaps that that failure and tough times are a learning opportunity and a chance for us to, you know, learn, bounce back and have a crack more intelligently. And I think that's relevant for us as farmers as well. Um, I hope you enjoyed that just as much as I did. Um, it's a real honour and a real privilege to have the opportunity just to have some time with a truly great and iconic australian so thank you everyone take care please share that i think um our kids our friends our cousins um our mates can just enjoy that as well and i can't wait to lock this one in and share it with my family take care everyone speak soon bye for now Thanks for listening to another episode of the Profitable Farmer podcast by Farm Owners Academy. If you're new to this show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a long-time listener, let your friends know about us or come continue the conversation in the Profitable Farmer Facebook group. All the best as you grow your business and create your freedom farm. Until next time, keep being incredible.